A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And a very warm welcome to the reading room. Now, everything that has anything to do with books will come across our path, I'm sure, at some stage or another when it comes to reading them, to discussing them, to writing them. And with me today, we have somebody who has written a book. And it is not a novel. It is not a self-help book. I would say possibly a self-actualization is the way that we're looking at it. So with me today, clinical social worker Cliff Matthews and author of This Way Forward. Thanks for coming to join us. Thanks very much for having me. I'm, I'm really glad that you said it's not self-help. There, <laughs> there is a bit of a, a thing with people and they absolutely. say, oh, not another self-help Absolutely. Book. It's really got a bad rap at the moment for good reason, in my view. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that is just not appropriate. In what way not appropriate? Well, it's too quick as far as I'm concerned. There's no quick fix to self-actualization, to self-esteem. Even if you have very positive self-esteem, it goes through phases. It needs to be maintained and sustained. And I don't believe the three seconds of clicking fingers and saying mantras in the mirror does it. It's a much more difficult and longer journey. This is an interesting thing because I think everybody wants a quick fix. Yes. They sit there and they think, this is wrong with my life. Somebody else must fix it for me. Yes. So then I will go and do these things. I'll listen to this person and that will fix it. And most of the time it doesn't because the person intrinsically does not change themselves. No. And, and I mean, the research shows that the seminar with 20,000 people in the stadium with lots of rah-rah and jumping around has very little impact on the majority of people. There are, num there are few in that room or in that stadium who will get it, go and use it, and be very effective. But the majority of people walk away having had a kind of an injection of energy, mm. and then that's it. It's just herd mentality. Yeah, exactly. And I think particularly now in our present pandemic situation, it needs far more intricate work. And people, so many people losing their jobs, yep. not being able to work. And I think a lot of people tend to define themselves by what they do. And if you haven't been able to work, that kind of made a lot of people go, I don't know who I am. Have you found that specifically? I mean, you are a, a clinical social worker. I want to say a clinical psychologist. But I mean, that's pretty much where it's coming from. Yes. Have you found a lot of that? Are it's, you it's prevalent and it's prevalent amongst the whole hierarchy of employment people. I have investment banker friends who suddenly don't know what to do. There's no opportunity for them to invest. 
there's nothing going on and they have apparently supreme self-esteem and confidence mm. and yet they are struggling. Okay, well, let's take it a step back. So did you train as a social worker? Yes, so I trained as a social worker and did an honours degree in psychology. Um, I also happened to have gone to the business school, but that was much later in my, in my career. And I started out working. <laughs> it's a very interesting story. Uh, I got a letter from the then Minister of Health saying, we need a crisis centre in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. I'm talking mid-70s. And his name was Connie Mulder. And oh, I, yes. Okay. <laughs> and I think he did a PhD on hopscotch, if I remember correctly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, I, in fact, had been offered a job in Australia, and I decided, no, I'm staying here. And I opened a crisis center in Cape Town. Mm. Cape Town was still a sleepy hollow at the time. And I got frustrated and was then uh, seconded to Falkenberg Psychiatric Hospital, mm. where I became assistant director of a fascinating therapeutic community, which also has a fascinating story, and it's in the book. And I worked there for a period of four years. Mm. And that's, that's also one of the biggest drug rehab centers in the Cape as well, isn't it, Falkenberg? It's a holding place for yeah. drug abuse. I happened to be on the staff of a substance and process abuse center in Johannesburg as well. But it was an amazing clinic. It has an interesting history, which is tied up with apartheid regime, and we can go there if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> but um, So that's how I started out uh, my clinical life. Mm. I then moved into corporate consulting with a very close friend of mine and spent the last 30-odd years in that field. It's a very interesting environment, the corporate environment. I don't think I could ever work in a corporate environment. I don't have the right mindset for it. But the, the power plays... Is that one of the things that you, you were always like kind of absolutely. working with people on? Absolutely, absolutely. And the reasons you're called in to do certain consulting projects always need to be looked at very carefully because there's often an agenda attached to it. So it, it was a very interesting time. But the last 20 years of that was most fascinating. I was involved in doing large-scale change management projects using industrial theatre as a medium for change. So you were one of those good people who got actors in to come and do correct, really good work. Correct, yes. really yeah. professional actors. We, we really yeah. did it well. It also had a bad image. There was the, who was, I think it was one of the ministers who commissioned an HIV and it went it haywire. Bombed completely. Yeah, yes, yeah bombed. I and that. I think there was a whole bunch of, of shenanigans going on. But we really did well and we worked internationally in Southeast Asia, in Canada, in America, in Germany, using this as a medium with a very positive outcome in most situations. Mm. So how did you get to the stage where you decided, right, I'm going to share my knowledge in a book? There were three major reasons. One, I'd had a very tragic experience in my life. My partner, Helga, was murdered in a hijacking incident on the 24th of April, 1998. I couldn't work this thing through with all my knowledge, with all my understanding. I read books, there were grief chat lines, and I couldn't work this out. It was too painful. I have a 15-year-old daughter at the time, and she was uh, going through her 
I think it was called Standard 9 mm. in those days, probably grade 11. Grade 11, yeah. And, and this was extremely traumatic, as you can imagine. And I literally almost went to bed for five months. And eventually I thought, if I write a book, if I write this down and I express all my feelings, it will go away. The catharsis. Was, it correct. should have been it a catharsis. I thought this was going to yeah. be the end of it all. Of course, it's never. Mm. You, you know, the bag just gets lighter, but it never really goes away. The second reason was I thought I had some unique stuff to say about self-esteem mm. that wasn't Abraham Maslow. You, you probably know of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Wi-Fi is the bottom it, level. Ex- yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought I had some unique stuff to say about self-esteem. Mm. I, the third reason is I wanted to get rich and famous, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever I, gets rich and famous I, I, except for like you know, James Patterson. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I was at a conference in Orlando and Ken Blanchard, the mm. famous Ken Blanchard, was the keynote speaker, and he proceeded to tell us that he'd sold nine million copies of the One Minute Manager mm. in twelve weeks. That's pretty good. I, and he's the most boring speaker I'd ever come across. In my <laughs> I, thought, I thought if he can do it, this charismatic you can young fellow can do it as well. <laughs> of course, it doesn't work out that way. All right. So you started writing the book. Did it like help you with getting through anything? Did it? So I wrote forty pages, mm-hmm. and then I felt a relief. There was definitely some kind of relief, and I put it on the shelf, and that was that. Mm. I at the time thought I can't write. This is too difficult. I don't have a creative bone in my body. Until a very interesting thing happened in my life. I made a documentary movie in Poland dealing with resilient women. It was specifically aimed at uh, resilient Holocaust survivors Mm. who had been harbored and saved by Polish Catholic people. Mm. It's a very interesting thing when you say about women and resilient women. Is there a difference in the way that men and women process things in their lives? I mean, we always say men from Mars, women exactly. from Venus. Exactly. Is there a totally different way that you've noticed that we, we deal with stuff? I think there is. I think women have the capacity to be more vulnerable more easily. And for me, vulnerability is a strength rather than a weakness. I'm not talking about fragility. Mm. I'm really talking about vulnerability. And it appears as though women, even in the workplace, appear to handle emotional issues much better than men can. Mm. I'm not convinced about the genetic right brain, left brain debate, etc., etc. But women seem to have a capacity to be able to absorb deep emotional pain, deal with it, get up and move on. Mm. Which was evidenced by these two, the documentary followed the life of two women who were in their 80s by the time I got to talk to them. And it was absolutely mind-blowing to see how they managed to work through some of the stuff and get on and be exceptionally productive individuals in society. You know, we've all read Man's Search for Meaning and Viktor Frankl and Lala, but these were exceptionally... Interesting circumstances because they were, they were not particularly explicit. Mm. They weren't famous people. These were two regular folk mm. who just managed to get up from the most awful circumstances. 
I often wonder, is there actually a meaning? Is there any reason for any of this? Or is it just that we, we muddle along as best we can? I'm a great fan of a guy called Elaine de Botton. I don't know if you've come across. Mm-hmm. He's absolute amazing new age philosopher. And he speaks about the very issue of hope as well as the concept of good enough, which for me is amazing. You can only have a good enough life. You can only have good enough parenting. It comes out of an old psychoanalyst called Donald Winnicott who wrote extensively about it. And, you know, I think that a guy like Frankel had a very solid personality Mm. foundation and was easily able to manifest hope. Yes. (laughs) But... But regular folk don't often have that. And I think unrealistic hope for me is a serious disadvantage Mm. to people who just cannot grasp the concept. They're always wanting to have more. Idealized relationships don't exist. Mm. Idealized anything doesn't exist. Except in the mind of teenagers. Oh, yeah. You've got, you must have teenagers, right? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. <laughs> but it's, that, that word, enough, I think it's, it's always been one of the words which, for me, there was a wonderful poem that somebody, a, a mother wrote to her daughter. I can't remember the entire thing. But it was, may you have enough. And that was the best thing that you could ever say to somebody is, may you always have enough. Absolutely. absolutely. It liberates you to go on and achieve mm. what you need to achieve without the expectation, without the pressure, without the constant worry that you're not meeting the expectations. Mm. Okay, so when did you pick up the book again? I oh. mean, how long, did, how long was it when you put your 40 pages away in the bookshelf and then you thought, hang on a second, let me get back into this again? So in 2008, after my first trip to Poland, of which there were 45 subsequent ones, I started writing again, and then I thought, I need a ghostwriter. Mm. I can't do this. And the ghostwriter turned out to be a ghost. because <laughs> Okay. <laughs> he wrote about another 25 pages and then literally disappeared. disappeared into he the literally air. disappeared. Mm. And I'm not a particularly difficult client, I don't think, so I don't know why he disappeared. And then I put it away for about three or four years again, and then showed it to a friend of mine. And mm. she said, this is fantastic. You need to finish this. You need to get it done. I don't care what it takes. And I started writing. I, I went to my sister who lives in Howick. And I locked myself up for three months. And I just wrote. Mm. And it was done. Was that eventually the cathartic experience that you it needed? It definitely was. Mm. It definitely was. Not only did it give me the ventilation, but it also connected me with my sister. Yes. We weren't estranged in any way, but we just had very little contact. Mm. Uh, she's a cancer survivor. And even through that, there wasn't this closeness. But it was absolutely amazing. And, and when I look at resilience as a concept, one of the key researched factors in resilience is support from others. Mm. And so being able to accept support from others correct. is even more important. Correct, correct. Yeah. But, I mean, you would think that as humans progress, and I am using little kind of quotation marks around that, as we supposedly progress, that you know, we'd become a lot more, not insular, but helpful towards other people, especially as, I mean, especially in fraught times like we've been living in at the moment. Why is it, do you think, that people are becoming even more fractured 
and we're talking about worldwide, not just here in South Africa, the polarity between male and female, between Christian, Muslim and Jewish, between different countries, different tribes. Why, why has this suddenly happened at a time we should all pull together that we're all pulling apart? So I think the coming of age of strong men, yeah. strong leaders. Which we don't yeah. have very many of, unfortunately. They're all strong women now. Well, yeah, well, but I mean, when I say strong men, I mean those who are fascist in nature. Yes, who have created polarities in society. Mm. I don't want to go too deeply into it, but I think that the polarity is being messaged from the leadership in many situations. And it's about be strong, stick rigidly to what you believe, hate anybody that's not like you, etc., etc. Mm. And, and of course that's trickling down to the way that people yes, manage other people absolutely. as well. And it's so pointed in terms of self-esteem. Mm. So let me say this. I'm not sure whether you want to let it go on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> say it. <laughs> There's a particular world leader who, if you were to look at him doing what he does, you would say supremely confident. Yes. Supremely confident. But when, I'm not going to use the word that I was going to use. No, no, I was going to use yeah, it. Yeah. I was going to. But if you have to respond to tweets from people you don't know, will never meet, and who live in Paternostra, mm. there's something wrong with your self-esteem. And that's, for me, the difference between self-confidence, mm. which you can easily portray, act out, make as if, and the fundamental core self-esteem. If you're responding to tweets from 16-year-old green activists in a vicious and obnoxious way, there's something going on inside of you that's not lacquer. So what is the answer to this? I mean, how do you get people to build their self-esteem? I have a particular formula around self-esteem. And it says that self-esteem is the combination of your self-worth mm. times your self-respect. Self-worth is normally the goals that you've set for yourself. And I'm not a proponent of major goal setting. To mm. be okay, we can talk about that as well. Multiplied by have you achieved your goals in accordance with your values. When those two get together, you build good self-esteem. So it's actually actualizing yourself, getting it done, instead of sitting Getting back. it done in a way that does not disturb your belief systems. Yes. That for me is absolutely core, and I've seen it over and over again, that people will meet their goals at the expense of their values and their beliefs, provided they have values and beliefs and they're a small yeah. percentage of the population who don't. The sociopaths, do you mean? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, so meeting your goals in accordance with and aligned to your values mm -hmm. is the key to balance, to success, to meaning, and to purposefulness. Okay, so what would people get out of the, the book this way forward? Okay, the book has three major concepts per chapter. Firstly an explanation, which is purely theoretical, but not too deeply theoretical. Mm. Then personal stories, which illustrate the actual concept. And then a survey or almost a balance sheet of where you're at in regard to your values, your goals, your relationships, your resilience. And then things to do. Mm. A action plan, giving pointed advice around how one would build those particular aspects. 
as you said, we're not going to give them the balance sheet that says, you have to say this mantra so many times in a day. Absolutely not. I don't have to stand and look at yourself in the mirror and I am... Neither, neither do you have to sell your Ferrari to become a Buddhist monk. <laughs> I had a friend who was a Buddhist monk and decided to buy a really long <laughs> Lexus. But, but um, I mean, what, what about the people? I mean, I found it quite inspiring going and doing a course walking on hot coals. <laughs> okay. And I don't care what people say. They're not going to burn. You can burn your feet. And I have really took a lot away from that because it was a thing of self-belief. Not just belief that I'm not going to burn my feet, but the belief that I could do this. I could do sure. something which was really scary, and I wasn't actually having anything kind of wrong in my head with what I was doing, if that makes any sense. There was no challenge to my belief system. It was very much self-actualization. Do you think that there is a lot of merit in things like that? Yes, I think that one has to be cautious not to idealize it and is it generalizable? Can you take that experience and generalize it to other aspects of your life? There's some interesting research. The CEOs of the top 500 fortune companies are scared of one thing more than death, and that is public speaking. Really? Yes. It's researched. They gave them a list mm. over and over again. What do you fear most in life? These guys present financials every six months. And they are more scared of that than death. I actually get that. I suppose you're either the type of person who can talk to a crowd of people or you're a person who just does stuff. <laughs> Even the ones who appear to be able to are still absolutely not so happy doing it. No. I... So my question is, we send the guy to walk over coals. Yeah. He has belief in himself. Can he generalize that sense of belief to the public speaking arena? Mm. If yes, wow. It's an absolute win. If not... And it's just a thing to do. Correct. So, so that's my criteria for determining whether there's been long-term significant impact on fundamental core personality issues rather than just five minutes of rah-rah. Mm. So if there's one thing that you could say to people who are really having a hard time after this global pandemic and lockdown and losing so much for so many people and then also our loss of belief in the power structures that be in this country. What would that one thing be to people? So can I give you five? You may. You'll make it work. If you want to give five, I'm, I'm fine with five. <laughs> I'm going to take so notes think, of all of them. I think firstly, get support from the people around you. Mm -hmm. Secondly, build as much self-awareness as you possibly can. Because when you're equipped with your own self-awareness, you know what's projection, you know what belongs somewhere else, and you know what belongs with you. And you can filter out the noise, if mm. I can put it that way. Thirdly, never give up on hope. You know, I work in the field of addiction. It's a very tragic, tragic disease. And I have a very personal story about it. Mm. And people often give up hope with addicts. And I keep saying, you don't know what will be in the next five minutes. Mm. And I, I can tell you a story of a very close, close person who was purported to be the youngest heroin addict ever in South Africa. She'd been to 12 rehabs. Mm. Sterkfontein, West Corpies, No Ports. How old was she? She started shooting at age 13. She's in the book and I've got her permission to write about okay. her. Um, she started shooting up at age 13 and this went on for many years. And... Something happened. 
everybody had given up. Mm. And something happened. And she's now 19 years clean. It's a miracle. It's mm. an absolute miracle in the addiction field. So you never quite know when that moment is going to sh twist from I can't do this to hope. So never give up hope, mm. ever. Don't idealize hope because sometimes it's not going to happen. You never, maybe you're not going to walk after some serious accident. Yeah, because sometimes hope just floats. Exactly. Then flexibility, the capacity to adapt and adjust to circumstances. And all these can be built, the behavioral ways of building them. Mm. So those are, my, those are my core issues for managing this pandemic. And also allow yourself to feel vulnerable. Allow yourself to feel that it's not great out there at the moment. Mm. And allow yourself to accept help from people who offer it to you. Absolutely, absolutely. Most of the mental health care professionals put the pandemic in the framework of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's grieving process. Mm. Denial, anger, bargaining, finally depression, accept, all of depression that, yeah. finally acceptance. to acceptance, yes. Yeah. And that's all well and good, but all, all it really does is give us a model to place this in. One really needs the other five issues that I mentioned mm. in order to manage your way through it. Not out of it, because we're not out of it yet, no. but at least through it. I think people are still stuck in the anger phase at the moment <laughs> I, across you know, the country. A, a very close friend of mine has had a, a really difficult experience with it. Mm. And she wrote a piece that was fascinating. And you could actually see the stages of Kubler-Ross emerging as she wrote. And it was wonderful to see how from deep anger, deep depression, mm. she's now wanting to help other, other people, wanting to sit at hospitals. I told her, you're crazy. Mm. But wanting to sit at hospitals and really just give people who are struggling with this awful thing mm. some sense of hope it's going to be okay. I think also one of the frustrations for so many people is that there are so many people who are so much worse off than we are and there's not much we can do. The amount of help that is needed and the, that frustration and desolation almost and that we are not able to help as much as we should. And it the shouldn't actually be our job in the first place. The tragedy of impoverished people is unthinkable. Yeah, it's absolutely revolting. If you're sitting and you're talking about the stage of acceptance, I immediately start thinking of that wonderful movie with Roy Scheider, all that jazz. Ah, yes, yes. And he goes through all the phases when he finds out he has cancer. It's, it's a really kind of self-affirming movie, that one as well. Yes, it might be absolutely. quite hard, but I, I would suggest people try and find it and watch that as well. Otherwise, just read about the little train that could. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can, I think I can. I always think, I can, I can, I can. I'm going to do that. All right, so if people want to get hold of your book this way forward, so how do they do on that? on Amazon. Yeah. If you have Amazon, Kindle Unlimited, you get it for free. Mm. If you merely log on to Amazon, put in this way forward, Cliff Matthews, and it's on sale there. Okay, so not a hard copy book. It is a hard copy Where? book. Oh, on Amazon itself. On Amazon as well. I also have, I think, 200 copies lying around. So if they want to go to cliff at cliffmatthews.com, I will gladly help people. Good. And that's what it's about. It's about helping everybody else. And helping yourself. Do you think that some of us have got a St. Jude crisis? <laughs> we can only help ourselves by helping others? Ah, it's a very common phenomenon in the helping professions. Huh? Mm. I'm sure most shrinks and, and whatever's went into shrinking in order to deal with their own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's food for thought right there. <laughs>
I would urge people to log on to Elaine de Botton's stuff. He's an amazing guy. He appears pessimistic and stoic, but he's not at all. There's always a message of hope mm. in his talks, but he's really deep, fundamental, and, and wonderful to listen to. Excellent. Well, that's, that's definitely one of the ones that's gone onto my reading list now, and I hope you're going to put that onto your reading list too. Cliff, thank you very much for coming and talking. I'm definitely going to um, get hold of the book and see I how it resonates. I brought you a copy. Oh, oh well, fantastic. Down. I didn't even notice that. Right. Well, I've got some fabulous reading for the next week. And for you as well, if you really want to help others and help yourself at the same time, this way forward is the way forward. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.